You're listening to The Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half hour or so we're going to be talking about all things food and drink and I'm so honoured. Uh, uh, we've only got one guest today and the reason why we've only got one guest is because Asma Khan is so interesting. We're just going to devote a whole programme just to her. So welcome Asma. Thank you very much. So would you mind just explaining and, and setting the scene for us um, about when you were a child and how you grew up and, and your family history? I'm very fortunate. I come from a royal family from my father's side and mother's side. And um, and Cullery, the great, uh, you know, for me, I lucked out because they're, my father's from the north, my mother's from the east. And usually with arranged marriages, you marry within your own clan or uh, in, in the same area because, you know, that's how families network. But my parents got married because they were both royalty with very different food uh, heritages. I've inherited both. And, um, you know, it, it just, you knew from the very, when you were a very young child, we ate differently. We ate differently and when you did these big uh, traditional feasts, our food was completely different. So let me just rewind on that. So in a way, if, if we look back at the history of, of Great Britain, uh, there were often a lot of marriages, you know, in the royal family because it was strategic, you know, because yeah. somebody had land in France or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, so were you saying that it was a strategic marriage in that respect, in a way? Yes, it was. It yeah. was a strategic thing. And, and, you know, it worked out very well for my parents. But, you know, they the food on, on the dining table, the food was divided into two lots. My mother ate a particular kind of food and my father did. The biggest difference was, you know, my mother ate rice, my father ate roti. Yeah. My mother was from near Calcutta right. and my father was from near Delhi uh, in UP. And it was it, a chance to eat a very, you know, very, very distinct uh, style of food. The food from Calcutta is, you know, it's a game of two halves. I mean, because there are, there are two dif- distinct kinds of cuisine, which can be confusing if you're a, a visitor. The Bengali cuisine, which is, uh, you know, local cuisine, has, you know, it's all fish. It's a very peasant style, very simple, a lot of mustard, fresh fish, a rice and uh, vegetables cooked very simply, very quickly. Uh, then there is this other kind of cooking, which is the Mughlai food, yeah. which is the Calcutta biryani, the chicken chop, the drizala, the parathas and finni. That is my heritage. I am from that. So the, there is that common factor between my parents. They're both Muslims and they both have very strong Mughlai uh, influence, which is what in the cookbook I try to explain I, you know, in my cookbook. What is that style, mm. the essence of Mughlai cooking, which you find in both my parents' cuisine? So just um, just explain what it was like being in your, your, your household, you know, in terms of the kitchens and how you ate and, and, and all that sort of thing. And then please tell us what, you know, you say a banquet, so, so in my house, we have like, I don't know, 10 people for Christmas. Explain to me exactly what that setting was, what it felt like, what it smelt like, what it looked like. The, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I grew up in an India where there was no internet. We had very little television. No one had mobile phones. The only way to entertain and to be entertained was eating. And no one, everybody focused on the food and it was a wonderful time, now I realize, because people made eye contact, they discussed the dishes. And then, you know, invariably in my family, at dinner we discussed what were the leftovers, how it was going to be prepared for breakfast. And then at breakfast we discussed lunch. And no, and the thing is, I grew up in this kind of, where food was central to everything. If someone died, got married, someone got engaged, a child was born, 
the discussion would start off by what are we going to cook? What are we going to eat? And so the core of every happy or sad occasion has been food. And, you know, to grow up in that kind of environment and, you know, if my mother said, you know, some people are coming over from the family, it would be between 40 and 60 people. That's just immediate family. Not even like looking at that's cousins. Just, that's just popping around for dinner. Yeah, and you know, my wedding had like 5,000 people uh, at my wedding. Uh, my sister had more uh, people at her wedding. But it's, so, you know, cooking in, in large numbers is so, something we do all the time. So how was that sorted in your household? You know, I mean, I presume you lived in a huge... Uh, well, I, I didn't grow up in, in the palace. Uh, oh. my, my father, very interestingly, uh, decided to get a job as an engineer. And he worked for uh, his entire life with trade unions. Uh, I have a very interesting family when it comes to the politics. And my father worked in factories and was basically a negotiator on behalf of the trade unions, yep. breaking strikes, because 70s was a very difficult time in Bengal. Uh, workers just got, it was a difficult time in the UK, to be honest yeah, with you. <laughs> and it was a time when workers just got locked out. Sure. And my father would stand at the gates in the scorching sun. I, I learned then that, you know, you are born, you know, he used to always tell me this, that you are born to make a difference. You could be born in a slum. You're born in a palace. Make that big difference because this is an opportunity for you mm. to use your voice. So again, describe describe how these meals were, were made and how they were cooked. Well, we Because oh, you, you wouldn't cook at all, would no, you? No, no, no. I didn't know Absolutely how to cook. Not. No, no. I, and all kids were kept out because it is very frantic and there's a lot of coal and wood fires burning around in the kitchen. And now when I think about it, I think, oh, good God, you know, you used to have the gas cylinder next to the biryani thing. I've, health and safety, we were not big on. And, uh, <laughs> and it was just fun. There was just so many people, but such joy, such joy. And, and, and the sense that they were, the sense of occasion, every meal. Because the thing is that in each meal, there was a dish that was symbolic. So, you know, the biryani for the wedding, uh, you know, when you had uh, the fish, you know, when the engagement was happening because fish was very auspicious. And so you know, the big fish dish being made uh, whole, of course, you should not, you know, in any way cut that fish, uh, you know, stuff the fish, the stomach with gold coins. So these little things, you know, were just uh, so every occasion was special and different. And and uh, what was the biggest banquet you've ever attended? I think the biggest one was my my sister's wedding. Uh, I'd never seen so many people. And then they did this absolutely spectacular dish, which uh, is done in very few of our families where they they kind of uh, barbecue an entire goat, which they stuff with chicken. The chicken is stuffed with rice and it's got an egg inside it. And it's just, the scoozy is, oh my God, it's fascinating to watch it. And one day, my dream is to replicate this in London. Right, okay. Now, I happen to know that you're actually quite a naughty girl. You didn't really do what you were supposed to do as a princess, did you? Not really. No, and and this is why I didn't marry a prince, because I was... They don't. They don't let you, had they? No, it wasn't that. No one wanted to marry me. Mm. I would have married some guy if he'd wanted to marry me, because, you know, when you're that young, you don't think that you have rights as a girl. Uh, But no one wanted to marry me because, uh, you know, it's all arranged marriages. But because I was a bit wild and played cricket the whole day with the street children on the streets, I was seen by everybody. Of course, this is before, you know, photographs. I mean, then I would have been, like, dead. Mm. But people would claim that they saw me, but because they were never sure. But my reputation had been destroyed by people talking about the fact that I played cricket on the streets, I climbed 
trees and I stole fruits from the neighbors, uh, which makes sense. The neighbors' trees had more fruits than ours, so you know <laughs> they won't miss a few yes, if I you took them. Don't think we'll condone that, but but eventually you did have an arranged marriage, and yes. weren't you lucky? Because he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, I had an arranged marriage, and you know he is the classic suitable boy. My father liked him a lot. Uh, Oxbridge educated, you know, came first in economics at Oxford. Very educated, very very liberal. Was least bothered about what I did, and you know, similar politics to my father. And you know, even though not royal family in any way, my father was hugely relieved because he knew <laughs> that my husband was not going to put any limitations on me, yeah. and would let me free. Yeah, I mean, um, I think my parents had trouble getting rid of me, so they put a sign in the garden saying "Last Girl Before the M20," and that did it. <laughs> um, so, so you meet this guy, and then lo and behold, you're having to move uh, out into the UK. That's a bit of a shock for you. Yeah, I'm. I think I hadn't really thought of this thing uh, a lot, and you know, this is of course, you know, again, 28 years ago, you, we didn't see a lot of film, or you know, I saw, you know, I saw London on film, but I didn't kind of really understand. I didn't understand how cold it was. Yeah. And I moved to Cambridge because that's where my husband was teaching at the university uh, in January, where the river froze. And what I'd never, I'd seen pictures of trees with no leaves. I come from Calcutta, where there is this abundance of greenery. And I used to look at the tree and I used to feel, this is me. I'm stripped of everything that is me is warm, that is, celebrates life. I'm this lifeless tree because it was so cold and I couldn't cook. And my husband was a terrible cook and he never ate with me. So from the time that I never ate a single meal alone, alone as in like at least 20 people in every meal, minimum, I ate every meal alone. That was really hard because mm. my husband was graduate tutor and spent that entire year eating all his meals in college. Because he had, you know, to see students. But also you couldn't cook, so he probably didn't want to come home. <laughs> yeah, and no, and the thing is that, you know, he cooked mm. for me and he left food. But like he's not skilled. He's a great economist, but he's a rubbish cook. Yeah. And he, you know, the rice he used to make, I really could glue myself on the ceiling with it. So sticky. I mean, I was like, I I come from the land of biryani. This guy was making this completely sticky rice. Obviously he didn't know. But he told my parents that, you know, oh, I don't worry. I don't believe in these roles that a woman cooks and a man. At that time, it sounded very good. The reality was that he's a bad cook and he could only make one thing. How did you get yourself out of that? I mean, you're sitting, you're, you're very lonely. It's blooming freezing. Yeah. You're in Cambridge, never been there before. Yeah. Uh, you decided that f because food is, has been such a, a central part of your life, even though you couldn't cook, there's a, there is only one solution and that is to start cooking, isn't it, really? I had to cook so that I could breathe mm. so I could feel complete. Food as an immigrant uh, is so important because this is the one thing that takes us home because you can't change things around. And, you know, of course, I, you know, left voluntarily, happily, you know, to get married to a person who I'd met. But a lot of immigrants who are here are here for different reasons. And those who travel, those who go through a terrible journey, you leave behind everything and you know there is no there's no door that takes you back. So what you can do is that you can bring the aromas of that home that you will never go back to in your space. And I 
this is how I I survived. This is how I I went home. And then I also realized that you know, this is this has to be more than just about me. It is a way to meet people, isn't it? Food, yes, sharing food. Yes, and yeah. so I this I started hosting these uh, parties. Oh, my husband isn't. He hated that. He'd come back and find the house full of people because I would never tell him. Because uh, I didn't even know when he'd come back. You know, he just was this busy academic who walked in and out. If stranger for me then was trying to make friends with this person who I didn't know. So I thought, you know, this is my strength. I'm going to make friends with, over food with people. And I saw that same look in people's eyes when they ate my food that I yearned for because I knew I'd taken them home too. Mm. So I used to do this, uh, you know, I never charged anybody. I would just invite people. Can you and, imagine how lucky you'd be? And also the thing is that my husband told me to stay away from all the students. So who, how else would I meet anybody? I was not a student at that time. I was didn't know anyone. So I would meet people and tell them, you know, I can make korma and I can make nihari. Like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, I had people <laughs> just a... following me home. But I was so lonely. I left everything and this eating alone was devastating mm. because that I found really hard. Uh, because of the kind of family I came from and because for me food was always about breaking bread together. This isolated you know, existence of eating alone was, you know, I felt, you know, I felt, you know, stripped, raw, incomplete and hungry. And no hungry. meal, no meal <laughs> filled me up. No meal left me satisfied that mm. I felt nourished. I was starving. So if we can, if we can sort of fast forward a bit, um, th- these, you know, became very, very successful. And then you decided to found... Darjeeling Express, yes. have I got that right? Yeah. Yes. And and did you do that in London or in Cambridge? In London. Because so, we had moved to London. That's where I studied law and yeah. I'd had the two kids. And I started Darjeeling Express the day I passed my PhD viva because I didn't want to make that big step. Uh, you wanted to, some security behind you. so No, and also I didn't want to take on my husband and family at that point who was so proud. I was the first girl who went to college. I studied law, I did a PhD. My father was telling the whole world, my my daughter is a doctor. And I knew the reaction when I told them, I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to be the researcher in the House of Lords, which is what everyone thought I was going to be. And I want to cook. It was a huge disgrace because for my family, uh, the girls get married very young and all they can do is cook. So how can how can that how does that be a disgrace? It's not a good thing. And the thing is that you know it is akin to manual labor. There's no honor in being yeah. a, a cook. And now things have changed because if you're on TV, people like you, and everyone's obsessed with MasterChef Australia, obsessed in India. And and so now, again, my frustration is there is an obsession with foams and steam and and all kinds of Western techniques of of, of serving food. And this is just like, it's a, such a huge hit for us. Yeah, it's an illusion, all that stuff. Yeah. So, so tell us about Darjeeling Express. Um, I know it's going quite well at the moment, but but what sort of things were you serving when you set it up? I served the food I wanted to eat. And it's tough with the prices that I need to pay for my service charge and my rent. I price it with what is comfortable for me. I don't want, this is what I'd pay for my own food. I want people like me, like me in 20 years ago, I never had a 
restaurant I could walk into. I see people at the pass when I watch. I go out and talk to them, weep when they eat. I know where they are coming from. Mm. I understand completely because I'm feeding them something that they've forgotten. They probably sat in somewhere because you know, we, we eat by hand. They, at, when they ate something like this, they were sitting in someone's lap and that person invariably, probably a mother, was mm. feeding them. And this is so, for me, such a big thing. I don't want to be, you know, rich or famous. I, I, want, I want to change that emptiness that I remember, that feeling of being a stripped tree, mm. lost and shorn of everything. For me, food is that. That is that bridge. I connect to that person. And they don't have to be Asian to understand that what this food is. But, but you didn't really particularly market that or do anything. And yet by 2015, Evening Standard voted you as one of the 15 best London restaurants. Is that just word of mouth? It is word of mouth. Mm. And uh, no, I've, I've never used any PR or marketing. I'm very low-key when it comes to writing about this because I think that, you know, more than, you know, uh, anything that anyone might write in print or listen to me, they need to eat my food. The food talks to them. And that's enough. I don't need to that's, go that, down the market. That says everything. Yeah, yeah. You say that, however, but you've been voted Entrepreneur of the Year, you've been voted all sorts of other things, and you've got a debut cookbook, which I have a copy of, thank you very much, which I uh, I got last time I saw you. I mean, it's called Asthma's Indian Kitchen. And what's really interesting about that is about telling the story of where that food comes yeah. from and what that, that the basis of that food is. Um, so, so why do a cookbook? Just because, I bet you get asked a lot, don't you? How do I make this? Uh, yes, I used to get asked a lot. And the thing is that uh, the people, I mean, the group that I bought my cookbook the most are my own family because all the recipes are unwritten. And we learn by like oral history, all the dishes. It was incredibly difficult for me to write my first recipe. I wept and I cried and I burnt the food twice. <laughs> and then I asked my kid just to measure everything that I was picking up by hand because I don't know how to use a teaspoon. Uh, and I don't know, there's no weighing scale. But so he weighed and measured everything. He took a video and he told me, this is what you did. I did my first recipe like that and I did all the others. And they're spot on. If I have to think, I cannot cook. You sort of choke in a way if you, if you, you suddenly interrupt that process. Yeah, you know, I can't. I, I burnt the food and like, you know, this is something I'd made in my sleep and I couldn't do it because I was trying to figure out what am I using. I can't because I just stand there and it's like, you know, a Beatles song, you know, every word. You stand there and the song is playing and the song finishes and the food is done. That's how I cook. But the cookbook is, you know, everyone has cooked from it in my family. But even people who have never cooked this food are all very happy because it works. It works because I've, te I've written it in two ways. I give you all the measurements, but I, I am there. My voice is there throughout. I'm holding your hand and telling you, Look for this, look for that, taste this, smell this. It's, 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 a, it's a book that is, I mean, for people who, they will understand a cuisine, which they've not understood once they could, because I explain the roots of the food. Mm. So, and uh, one other thing that, that you have done is you've got an all-women team of housewives who run yeah. the kitchen at Darjeeling Express. Yeah. And that's a very deliberate move by you. Yes, because I, I need to work with people who understand the way I cook. And someone who learned production line cooking in a Taj and Oberoi school, because none of these boys would have been allowed into the kitchen 
because it would have been such a disgrace for the family to have your young son hovering around. People would be so anxious. This, see it as abnormal. So the people who hung around the kitchen are girls. In Asian families, boys don't hang around kitchens. So they would not know how the food is cooked. They learned this in chef school. Otherwise, how, are, how do Indian restaurants have this long menu? Nothing is fresh. We have five things on our menu. If we're lucky, we have four. You know, and this is like, you know, our aspiration is to make five things. We don't even make it. And people come in are so tolerant. Like, oh, we didn't make the kofta today. You think if I come back at night, it'll be ready? Maybe not. Okay, fine. I'll come tomorrow. And it is just wonderful. People are tolerant because they can see us cooking. We're making it while they're sitting there. And, you know, my freezer, I have a small freezer full of ice cream. That's it. Which ice cream, which I eat. Uh, that's, you know, we don't have freeze anything. So all these lovely ladies arrive uh, in the morning and they, they start chopping, cooking, and no, that's we cook. what you have that day. No, we cook because we all cook like this. Every time someone got married in the village, we all contributed and cooked. They all come, you know, they don't come from the background I do, but actually we're all the same. You know, whether you're poor or you're rich, you have a limited amount of resources, you try to get the most out of it. You try to make sure that you deliver you honor your guest. You make sure it's impressive. That is the common thing. I never see my royal heritage and the fact that many of them did grow up in great deprivation, the women who worked for me, and you know, dealt with lots of abuse and all the... I didn't go through all of that, but I completely see myself in them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just to finish off uh, the program, you will be the first ever British chef to feature... In Netflix. Yes. Uh, and that's the uh, Emmy-nominated Chef's Table. How scary was that? Actually, it wasn't. Really? And yeah. I camera I, right in your face for hours on end. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I've never done film before or TV. So they rocked up and they were just... But in the first day, I realised that they cared as much about the food as me. They understood. They wanted to get into literally the kind of sub my soul and understand hear, what I was cooking. Yeah. Then they all faded. You know, 15 people filming me didn't matter because they were just in my breath trying to understand what I was making. It's a very different kind of episode because it's an episode that celebrates women, but celebrates the home cook, celebrates, you know, why women need to be with women and support each other. And yes, it does tell the story. I go back to my palace in the monsoons where the, my fortress is in ruins, so there's no roof. Uh, filming that was just like, oh my God, crazy. You know, we had the most adventurous time, you know, trying to get onto railways. Uh, 15 people with camera on an unreserved railway. If you've seen any pictures of Indian railways and there were goats in there as well. Of course, when you see the film, you think just see me. You don't see like... 200 people and seven goats pressed on the other side so that they wouldn't come into the thing. But it was just amazing. And then, you know, when they left, I did cry a lot. I cried for an hour because I was just so relieved that all these people left. They've, you know, captured my story. They understood what you were trying to say. They hadn't misinterpreted no, they it haven't. or, or and, taken one slice of it out of context. And it, it, I never thought when I saw the way that they talked to me and what they were trying to understand, I wasn't worried because, you know, my... Initial reaction was a bit very that I thought, oh, God, you know, are they going to play this exotic, you know, uh, token brown face, which is always 
an issue, mm. uh, you know, and picking me as the first British chef to be featured worried me a bit because, but no, they, it was just about food. We do biryani. I mean, I hope that people see it and see it as my love letter to London. This city has given me shelter. The city has allowed me to sow the seeds of a business which is now Darjeeling Express. And, and, and many other people too. And it is the most amazing place to grow up for my kids. And I'm so grateful that I can celebrate who I am and I'm free. And, you know, we, I hope that, you know, and the biggest thing is when we shot Chef Staple, we were filming all over London. You cannot imagine the kit, all branded as Chef Staple. London people took pictures, but not a single person posted because they promised me, we'll let this be your moment. Strangers. It's this very, is when you realize that's, that's that London, very respectful. This is when you realize London is the greatest city in the world. You know, it, yeah. you know, your one moment in social media thing that, oh, do you know they're filming Chef's Table at Kingley Court? No. They took pictures. There were huge notices, legal notices saying, this is, we're filming Chef's Table. You know, if you don't want to be, you know, filmed, avoid this area. Nothing. No one talked about it till Chef's Table made the announcement. Mm. And this is what London is so wonderful that they understand. And this is an immigrant story that they, they were all like, you know, we went to Borough Market. So we went everywhere. Everyone knew what we were doing. Well, thank you, um, Asma Khan, for joining us so much. Thank you. We could talk for hours, really. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you very you. much. Um, please bring some food next time. So you've been listening to the Food Talk Show. Um, as you know, we're syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield, as well as being available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes and the podcast app on your phone. <laughs> if you want to recommend any future guests... You can have real trouble getting somebody as good as Asma Khan. But, you know, if you do, you know, anybody amazing like Asma, please get in touch. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to foodtalk.co.uk. I hope you have a good week. Bye. Bye.